Morning. Uh, today's reading, we are looking at Romans chapter 1, and we're going to be looking from verses 1 through to verse 17. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the Son of God, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him and for him, for his name's sake, we receive grace and apostleship to call people from among the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. And you also are among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are who are loved by God and are called to be saints. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. God whom I serve with my whole heart in preaching the gospel of his son is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now, at last, by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you just as I've had amongst other Gentiles. I am bound both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from its first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Well, you need Romans on your lap. You need it on your lap in paper or electronic form because it's a masterpiece. The book of Romans is a masterpiece. If I say to you some names, I wonder if you could respond to me with the author or the originator of that piece of work, okay? So I'm going to say to you, the Sistine Chapel. Whose masterpiece was the Sistine Chapel? Michelangelo. Who, who carefully crafted a wonderful smile on a lady's face called the Mona Lisa? Who scored a goal? against Newcastle with uh, the t outside of his right foot in 2002, playing for Arsenal, that bamboozled the whole defence. And the great Dennis Bergkamp, not, it's a, not a Scottish player, but Dennis Bergkamp nonetheless, who produced a wonderful piece of literature called Hamlet? Who produced a wonderful piece of music called Tubular Bells? Each one of these are masterpieces in their own field. Let me not forget, seeing friends who I met at the door, The Messiah, written by Handel. These are all wonderful pieces of art, whether it be from the sphere of literature or music, 
whether it's paint on a ceiling or on a canvas, these are masterpieces and rightly called so they are. But then there's this letter written by the Apostle Paul. He's the man who wrote most of the New Testament and that you could ask anybody who studies the Bible and if they know their stuff, they will say, what is the masterpiece of Paul? What's the, what's the most carefully crafted letters? They all are, but what's the richest one? It's Romans. It's rich, fair indeed. This book has caused more controversy than any other, I think it's fair to say, especially chapters 9 to 11 that we're going to treat very carefully by not looking at them very much at all. <laughs> but we'll come back, I do promise, we will come back. This book is written not to a huge church. If you go to the centre of Rome, you'll see St. Peter's Colonnade. You'll see the Sistine Chapel contained. You'll see the, uh, the edifice of the pontiff and so on. But this letter was written to a small group of house churches. Chapter 16 of Romans tells us that. Maybe a hundred Christians surrounded by a million uh, pagans, non-Christians in the Roman world. This book is written not even to a church planted by Paul. He did a lot of church planting in Corinth and Ephesus and Galatia and Philippi, but not this church. This church, according to the book of Acts, chapter 12, was planted by Peter. And yet Paul wants to establish an outcrop for evangelism. And so he writes a letter to uh, show the gospel afresh, not as a reality check, but just as a, as a reminder to not correct wrong doctrine, like in Corinth, but to say, I want to remind you of the gospel that we both believe in. It's a rich masterpiece. And it's been valued throughout the history of the church as well. So, you might turn to the 4th century and there you could find Augustine of Hippo. He was not grey, he did not have four legs. But he was a bishop of Hippo and he loved this book. It changed his life. You could go fast forward to the 16th century and see in the writings of John Calvin how much he loved this book and how it, the commentary that he wrote changed the lives of so many other people. You can go a bit further forward now to John Wesley and how he read the works of Martin Luther in the 18th century and his heart was strangely warmed. This book is a masterpiece. What's it about? It's about God. It's about God's initiative in the beginning of the book. It's there at the end and it's right the way through the middle. If it was a stick of granite, it would say God's initiative all the way through. God beginning, middle and end. But let me focus for one moment on Martin Luther. He's the father of the Protestant church and in the 15th century, he came across this book. He was a good monk. He was such a good monk, he said, quote, if ever a monk was able to enter heaven by his monkery, yes, that's a real word, it was I. He was convinced that he had all his monkery badges, all his marks ticked off. He had his hair cut appropriately. He didn't eat certain things. He was there making um, mead and all that sort of stuff. He said, if I could get into heaven, by my monkery, I would do it, but I can't. And when I read the Bible, I see God as someone who is angry with me. And his conscience was, was like a turbulent ocean. He couldn't find any comfort in any of the Catholic writings. He asked these huge questions and God was angry to him. Where is the God of mercy, he says in his writings. And then he started to read the Bible more carefully. He read the Psalms. And then he read Paul's book called Romans and it changed his life. He says this, when I studied Romans chapter 1 and verses 16 and 17, it was, quote, 
a gateway to heaven for me. He had a huge discovery that changed his life in Paul's masterpiece called the book of Romans. Verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1, it's the gospel like a Mary Berry uh, condensed sauce that's really rich and dense and true. I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew and the Greek. For in it, verse 17, there is a righteousness of God that's been revealed, that's found nowhere else. It's rich food, it's a masterpiece. Let's look at the form of the gospel, point number one. The form of the gospel. How did Luther have a breakthrough? This is how. Because of one word, the gospel. This uh, word gospel, euangelion, it means good news. It's not fake news, it's good news. It's good news of something that has been achieved, something that has been done. It's about news media. And to take you back before the internet, I hear a gasp. There was a day before the internet. There was a day before the printed press. There was a day before news was shared on telephones. How was the good news shared? This is a a compound Greek word with two words stuck together with glue. And it simply means heralded. Good news that is shared. A messenger that comes and proclaims something that has already been achieved. Just like in the old ancient times when there was a war, when people were corralled in their nervous, knee-knocking city walls, wondering what the general would achieve. Would he win against the foe or not? How would the general send message? He didn't have a mobile phone in his pocket. He didn't have a carrier pigeon. That would get shot down. So what did he do? He sent a herald. And a herald was someone who would run or come on horseback. They would come to the nervous city and they would say, Victory! Or they would say, Defeat. And once the good news has been shared, victory, there's been a victory on the front line. Then the herald would go to the next city and say, victory. He's a herald of good news. That's what is behind this word. And Paul says, chapter 1, verse 1, I am a servant of Christ Jesus. I am an apostle of Christ Jesus. And you know what? I want to communicate to you, verse 1, the gospel of God. This is not about something you need to achieve. There has been a victory, and it's my passion and my life's aim. I am bound to share the news of victory. My ministry is shaped by the gospel because it's good news of a birth, of a sufficient death, of an accepted resurrection, and a glorious ascension. So Jesus Christ is ruling and reigning, and that's what I've come to share with you, Roman church. I long to come and see you, but let me share to you the gospel. Because there is a difference in the first sentence between Christianity and philosophy. Philosophy is a good way of thinking. Other religions tell you how to get to God by what you do. Here is Paul saying, right off the bat, I am a proclaimer of the gospel. The gospel is unlike any other religion. It's unlike any other way of thought because it's good news about what Christ has already achieved. It is not, this is what you must do. We say this so often. It's what Christ has done. It's achieved. It's not about how you get to God. It is a status that is bestowed upon you. It's given to you. And Paul says, this is not good advice. This is good news. 
If you ask a friend, how do you know if you're a Christian? Well, if you've lived a good life, as soon as those words come out of their mouths, compassionately we can say you've not yet grasped the gospel. It's not about what you do. It's about what Christ has done, what he's achieved. It's historical reality. And he continues in verse 3. The gospel of God is not something done through Jesus. It is Jesus. Jesus is the gospel. Verse 3 tells us that. Paul says, this is the gospel concerning God's Son. Jesus is the gospel. How do I get that from verse 3? Look at it. According to his human nature, he, Jesus, became a son of David. But according to the spirit of holiness, he was declared to be the son of God. Do you see the difference? Jesus was marked out. He was declared. It was announced who he is. He did not have to become the son of God. It's something he always has been and forever will be. But he became a son of David. Verse 3, he became a son of David. He took on human flesh. The divine and the human coming together. So that now there is a risen, the risen son of David, the risen conquering son who is in heaven with wounds. There is flesh in heaven and that's just from verse 3. Jesus Christ has always been the son of God but he became the son of David. That's the form of Christianity. Christianity is the great news that something has happened outside of you. It's not something you have to achieve. It's something momentous. It's something life-changing. It's something history-shaping. It's the gospel that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, became Son of David. Humanity and divinity. If you think Christianity is mainly about you, where you go, what you read, how much you give, how much you serve, you've not yet grasped the gospel. It's a status, and from that status we live out. From that status, we seek to please God, to bring a smile upon his face, not to win his approval. We already have it, because it's a status that is bestowed upon you, and once bestowed, you can never lose. It's the form of the gospel, but number two, what about the content of the gospel? What about the content Remember Luther, this monkery person, was studying Romans chapter 1 with his habit. He couldn't keep the habit. And he kept studying it and he had a breakthrough. A breakthrough in the gospel because he saw it was a status bestowed. It's the form of the gospel, but then he meditated on the content. Verse 16 and 17 of chapter 1. For in the gospel a righteousness of God, a righteousness from God is revealed. A righteousness that comes by, through faith, just as, as it's written, a quote from Habakkuk, the one who is righteous through faith, that is the person who's alive, that person lives. The righteous shall live by faith and go on living by faith, we can add in. He's thinking about this, meditating upon it, and then he has a breakthrough. God is no longer just just an angry, capricious, wrath-filled. He sees that God has made a way of mercy through the cross. Two illustrations to make the point. Justification is the key theme in the book of Romans and in the gospel as a whole. Absolutely central that we never want to duck or dodge or move aside. We will die on this hill. We've got no gospel to preach if we don't own the gospel of justification. But what does it mean? We're going to come back to this a lot. But as the first point, it means this. 
Justification is not a change in the object. Justification is the change of our relationship to the object. Not a change in the object, it's a change in our relationship to the object. What do I mean? There you are in your car, you're on the hook road, it's very quiet, you put your foot down and you're doing at least 33 miles an hour, not 30. The law has not changed. The law says 30 miles an hour or you're speeding. There's a few people looking at each other across the hall at this point. The law doesn't change. It's 30 miles an hour. You go quicker than that, you're breaking the law. You are going quicker than that. Your relationship to the law has changed. You are now longer not keeping the law. You're not 30 or under. You're above. Your relationship to the law has changed. You're no longer justified. You're speeding in your car, on your motorbike, or even on your electric-powered pushbike. There's a thought. But here, throughout the book of Romans, it's used in this verse, and in Romans chapter 5, verse 2, justification is not a change in the object. It's change in your relationship to the object because of Jesus. Paul says in chapter 5, verse 2, Since we've been justified by faith, we have access to this grace in which we now stand. There is a confidence that only the Christian can have because of the finished, satisfactory work of Jesus at the cross, because of the resurrection and the ascension, that now we stand on the justification of Jesus Christ. It's a new status that's given to us. We haven't changed. God has changed us. The righteous requirements of the law are still there. They haven't changed. But because of the gospel... We stand clothed in the sure and certain hope of the resurrection of Jesus, that the price has been paid. The law, the righteous standard has not changed, but we have changed because of the actions of Jesus. Something has been done. And that thing is Jesus dying on the cross. The first illustration of what justification means, not a change in the standard, it's a change in our relationship to the standard. Here's the second one. A long time ago, I was watching NCIS, Naval Crime Scene Investigation. It's not bad. It's okay. It's a, it's a police thing that happens, but in naval clothes. And there was an episode where uh, an 82-year-old man uh, was arrested by these two big, burly Navy SEAL-type peoples. And there was a Navy lawyer there who looked menacing, because he was American, so he looked menacing. And this poor old gentleman was uh, sort of stood up violently and was charged with murder. 82-year-old man. He's cowering down behind these two great big Navy SEALs that look like Dave Robertson, but even bigger. And the lawyer's there pointing and accusing. And then the old man's friend moves his tie of the accused. And beneath his tie was the Congressional Medal of Honor. Here is a man that fought in Vietnam and did an amazing act of bravery, almost lost his life to save and rescue other people. And when these two big Navy SEALs saw the Congressional Medal of Honor, when the lawyer who was accusing the man, this old man of murder, when they saw the medal, they saluted him immediately because of his standing, that he had the medal, something must have happened in his past. It's a great act of valor because of the medal. The way he was treated was completely different. Now that illustration, when we come to justification, doesn't quite work. <coughs> because that man achieved it himself. Justification is the fact that Jesus gives us his medals. He has achieved something by his death, 
resurrection and ascension. Jesus, in his former life, as it were, when he lived on earth as son of God and son of David, son of man, his medal is given to us so that now God relates to us in a completely different way if we're in Jesus. Now, because of Jesus, God the Father can delight in us. He can enjoy us. He can relate to us in a completely different mode and model. And Luther saw this. This his first breakthrough was saying that the gospel is not just advice, it's good news, it's a proclamation. And then the second breakthrough was, it's not just forgiveness of a crime, it's a whole new standing. It's a righteousness from God that's been given to me as a gift. But if you've had a week like mine, you might think, well, hang on. I'm a Christian here this morning, and I've, okay, I've got the medal of Jesus on, but I sure don't feel like it. If you knew the week I've had, well, I don't feel worthy of it. Friends, you never will. You'll never be worthy. But Jesus is always worthy. He's always good enough. He's always sufficient enough. He's utterly good enough. And we are covered with his medals. It's not about how you feel. It's a legal standing that Jesus Christ has achieved on our behalf. Verse 16 and 17, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. If you need to grasp this afresh, friends, it's the breakthrough that Luther saw. A righteousness from God has been revealed. It's the form of the gospel. It's news to be shared and proclaimed and enjoyed. But it's also the content of the gospel as well. But that's not enough, says Luther, I'm sure. Form, content, they're important, but you need to know the power, thirdly. You need to know the power. 16 and 17, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God. Here we have the gospel in a nutshell. It's reduced, it's condensed. Because notice what this sentence does not say. Look down with me. It is not saying the gospel brings the power of God. It's not saying that the results of the gospel. It's not saying that the gospel is a means to the power of God. Paul, with this verb in verse 16, says, the gospel is. The power of God is in the gospel, which is why we want to share it and enjoy it and know it. When you understand the propositions, when you understand the prepositions in the gospel, it has power to change you because you see what God has done. It deals with your problems immediately sometimes, slowly and gradually at other times. But it's not just a sense of ideas, the gospel. It's not just data that you can download. It's truth that needs to be stood upon and grasped and meditated on. I've got to get the gospel into my life. I've got to rub it in like cream into my hands, like yeast into bread. I've got to get the gospel in because the gospel is the power of God. The gospel is the power of God at work. And here's a couple of, days, a couple of ideas that that applies to. When you see the gospel, when you begin to grasp its power, you should be offended by it. That's one of the signs that you're beginning to see the power of the gospel. You begin to feel its offensiveness. You begin to see its unique truth claims. Because here's Paul when he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of it. He's speaking to the church that he didn't plant. 
They don't know him very well. I'm sure they've heard about the great apostle. But he's saying, I'm not ashamed of it. Now, to say that, that must mean, therefore, by inference, that people are ashamed. People are not owning the gospel that Peter planted the church with, that Paul is now proclaiming. They must be, or he wouldn't say, I'm not ashamed of it. If you're a religious person, the gospel will offend you because the gospel looks too easy. It looks too easy to you if you're a religious person. The hardest evening in Christianity explored is grace. Week number six happens every time because it's so foreign to us. We want to work our way to God. And yet here is Paul in verse one, let alone verse 17, saying it's a status that you need to receive. It's a gift that you need to receive with open hands. Put your religiosity to one side, open hands. If you're a religious person, the gospel will offend you because it's too easy. But if you're a more of a liberal person, it offends you in a different way. Not because it's too easy, but because it's too simplistic. Too easy, too simplistic. Too offensive, maybe. But friends, you are offended by the gospel, and that's a sign that you're beginning to see its power. Here's another way that you see its power. It begins to change you from the inside. It's a status that's received from the outside, but the power of the gospel, when it's understood, changes you from the inside as well. Look at verse 7 with me. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Here's Paul, he's beginning his letter, his memo, he's going to run to 16 or so chapters. But Paul is saying this is a status that you receive from the outside. It's given to you, it's bestowed upon you. You don't deserve it, you can never earn it. But God gives it to you by his grace. Does that mean you can live how you want? No. Does that mean you need to sin more so grace would abound, as he says in later chapters? No. God's grace, the gospel, is a power. And it changes you. So verse 7 says, to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Notice what he's saying. What is a Christian? A Christian is someone who understands the gospel in an increasing way and it changes how they live. They're called to love one another. They're called to be different. A Christian is someone who is loved by God first and then that love is seen as they love other people. Your relationship has changed. Something's been done to justify you. You're loved and you're called. You're invited into a new relationship with friends in a church. You relate to people differently at your workplace and your neighbourhood. You cannot experience the righteousness of God placed upon you, bestowed to you, and yet be the same person on the inside. It's a status you receive, but it changes you from the inside out too. It's the power of God. But friends, if you're then loved initially, then you're called by God. That means you're attracted to live in a different way. So Paul says, verse 7, to the saints. Friends, are you the same person that you were when you first understood the gospel? If you are, you need to ask hard questions why that is. Because you should receive new taste buds, and you do. Do you still love the things you used to love? Do you still spend your time and money and resources on the same things you used to? Or has there been a change? Gradual, but deliberate and marked. Do you see a change from within? Are you becoming more like Jesus? As we ask the children to sing. I want to be like Jesus. It's a hard song to sing. Because sometimes I don't want to be. But one of the signs that you see the power of the gospel is that you're offended by it. You have to respond. But another sign that you see its power is it changes you from the inside. 
You could sing, ooh, 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 I want to be like you, ooh, ooh. I want to talk like you, I want to think like you, I want to be like you. What song does your life sing? It's about the form and the content and the power of the gospel. <coughs> it's Paul's masterpiece, and we've just looked at one corner of it. Let's pray.